And I like Death by DVD. It's a statement. frontier. These are the voyages of Death by DVD, boldly going nowhere. I am your host, Hank, the world's greatest. Oh yeah. And guess who beamed up in just enough time to talk about Star Trek V, The Final Frontier? It's I, Alexander Nash. Set your faces on fun, I guess. This isn't the most fun movie. We're going to go punch God it's right now. the least the fun movie. I take that back. It's got some goofball. It's got probably too much goofball humor than probably Star Trek fans were really wanting in a Star Trek film, especially one with such heavy themes as this one. To start in on Star Trek V, The Final Frontier, this movie gets a really shitty rap. A lot of people hate it, like the most of the... Uh, Trekkers tend to really like talk really shitty about this one. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that when William Shatner signed up to direct this film, he had an idea. He did not have a script. He had a treatment. They got somebody else to write the script. He had some pretty fucking wild ideas, though, that as I've studied this the last few days and encountered some of the things that Shatner really wanted in this movie that we'll get to in a little while, you can see why there was a lot of problems. That just the whole creation of this movie, the writing of this movie, was Shatner wanting some extreme things. And by extreme things, I mean like golden unicorns. Yeah, there's some things in it, but the big issue was there was a writer strike so the original writer had to stop and there was kind of hiring freezes and a lot of things going on in Hollywood so there's a whole lot of bullshit around the making of this film that adds to some of the obvious problems I mean there's all obvious financial problems in this film the special effects were not done by the usual special effects house which at the time was ILM they were done by an offshoot company so not as good special effects not as much budget, a script that really wasn't 100% finished, all attributes to why this movie is maligned by a lot of people. Now, with all that being said, I really enjoy Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. And yes, all those things are very true. Like, the special effects are very bad. There's a lot of editing mistakes, especially when uh, they're flying up the uh, elevator with Spock's rocket boots. They pass the same floor two or three times. Oh, no, no. They, they go from 64 to 57 to 74 to 82 yeah. back to 64. That's a fun one. The things that take away from this film, I don't think take away for from the uh, overall theme of what Shatner was trying to get into with this film. And yes, it does have issues. But if you could just kind of ignore those and just go with the general concept of what's going on, it's incredibly interesting. And it really goes back to original series star trek stuff yeah i don't even think we really need to ignore a lot of the issues because when it comes down to 
even just genuine criticism, you've got to take the good and the bad. And last week, we, we did a lot of that. We complained and we bitched about how it was the weakest in the series, all the while still championing in it for the high points. There's a lot of comedy, something you just brought up. There's, the comedy is very different. The tone is very different in this film. And all the while, these things might be problematic, and they definitely can hinder, I guess, one's experience. What you well, were just touching Like, one complaint, there's a scene in this film where... Scotty is walking around in the Enterprise and he's delivering the line of, I know this ship like the back of my... And right before he says hand, he hits his head on a beam. Aha, see, he doesn't know the ship as well as... And there are people who complain about that scene because, well, Scotty knows this ship in and out and there was no way he'd do this and blah, blah. And my point is, it's it's just a joke. Well, just let the joke... reasoning go. for it. I mean, we, we brought this up on the last episode. So everyone's a bad guy. Kirk and crew are hiding out on Vulcan, and it's been three months. They come back to Earth, and there's this big, weird whale thing. All the plot of Part 4 happens, right? At the end of the movie, all of a sudden, they demote Kirk to captain, giving him what he wants, and they give him back the Enterprise. We brought up the fact, who the fuck was around to even be building it, and why would they have been building it for this criminal? This movie tries to at least patch up some of those discrepancies because what we are introduced to at the beginning of the film is the Enterprise is a piece of shit. Uh, Scotty's been working on it nonstop. Nothing works, right? It's it's falling apart. So we can maybe assume they hastily tried to restore an old ship and painted it to look like the Enterprise or something. So I think that entire joke plays off because, of course, he knows the ship, except it's been rebuilt. And, the, I mean, the movie begins with a Pratt fall joke like that. This, uh, we... <laughs> It's funny, we keep talking about how we like this movie over the last film, and there's a lot of Earth on the last film, and that's why it's not as fun, because this is Star Trek, despite the fact the final frontier begins with our heroes fucking camping and singing Row, Row, Row Your Boat. I believe we are required to engage in a ritual known as the sing-along. I haven't sung around a campfire since I was a boy in Iowa. What are we going to sing? What, Bones, what, what are we going to sing? How about Camptown Races? Pack up your troubles. Are we leaving, Captain? It's a song title, Spock. Moon over Rigel 7. Row, row, row your boat. Row, row, row your boat. I love row. Do, do you know row, 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 row your row, boat? Row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. Row. Well, that really lends itself back to how the the films the first four films it's so much about getting the relationship of the the main three leads together spot mccoy and kirk and getting the relationship back to the way it was like say in the original series and this film they do that right at the beginning like with this whole camping trip to yosemite or wherever they're at that they are friends they're on r&r together spock is still misunderstanding like earth concepts like beans. I don't know why Spock is so stupid about all earth culture, but really he wouldn't be, but that's besides the point. But just seeing them being characters who are friends with each other and warm all together at the beginning of this film really starts it off nice. Well, I think it's new Spock. That's why he's still a little confused about things because of course he Christ like died and was reborn. So he has a sense of humor. But beans? Now. Beans. What the fuck? I mean, if you you come back from the Genesis planet, where would you learn about beans and, and the Bushes company? <laughs> I don't know. There's <laughs> these unanswered questions is really why I fucking hate the movie. Cause Shatner never goddamn explains the beans. I'm in a full agreeance with you though. And we will repeat this on every Star Trek episode we do. 
I have no familiarity with the series, and as we've gone through this trek, I've started going back and watching original series episodes, and this really harkens back to the, the 1966 original series. It familiarizes you with the characters in a fun-loving way. The last movie, we got a lot of screen time. Leonard Nimoy, as a director, shined a lot of attention on each character and let us kind of see, like, oh yeah, Chekhov's still around. Sulu's still around. We got to familiarize ourselves again with them. And Shatner, who is directing this time, I think took a cue from Nimoy in that essence and really does let you get to familiarize yourself again with the characters because while all this is going on, you've got Sulu and Chekhov going through the woods and they're having a joke with Uhura. All, all of this buddy comedy stuff starts the movie off, but you can really see for a long-term fan that wants to be reintroduced to space in the final frontier and the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. Like, what is this? They're, they shouldn't be camping. As an outsider, and uh, I guess we could say, I mean, we're not Trekkies or Trekkers. I guess you could say we're just kind of conveniently talking about it as fans. We're just fans. We're, we like it? I don't know. We're nothing intense about this. So I, I, what I'm trying to get at and stumbling around here is the outsider looking in can enjoy this, but I can I completely understand how an insider looking at this is like, fuck it. This is terrible writing, and it's very, very clear that Shatner wanted to do, like, wagon train in space. He really loves westerns. He likes being a cowboy. He loves horses, and the whole entire plot of this movie is just a really long episode of Bonanza. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's the one where... Uh fucking Kane from Poltergeist comes into the homestead on Bonanza. You don't remember that episode of Bonanza where they punched God in his face? It's that <laughs> classic episode. I mean, the film starts off incredibly dark. I love the scene where uh, we first get uh, introduced to Cybok, which turns out is Spock's half-brother. Which is kind of pointless to the overall uh, theme of the movie other than it gives Spock something kind of a way out of having to support Kirk when uh, he's being very negative towards uh, Cybok. A lot of it came down to I think the the actors and on Star Trek 3 the episode on 3 that's the first movie that Leonard Nimoy directs and I brought that up that not everyone was particularly happy I don't think they were angry but I think there was a lot of confusion and, and maybe feelings of jealousy over Nimoy directing and now Captain Kirk is the is not just the captain, he's the director of the movie. And I think a lot of the people involved in this, namely the original crew of the Enterprise, felt a, a confliction with this script and what their characters were supposed to be doing. So I think introducing this, me personally, I, I feel introducing this character Cybok as Spock's brother gives a, a more coherent reason as to why Spock later almost betrays Kirk. And I, I like I, what it does to the, the overall plot of the film i just think it's one of those convenient almost soap opera like it's too convenient yeah where it's just like well he's my half brother oh okay well that it's just kind of truncates like really trying to set up some relationship or differences in spock's like challenging spock's personality which you could have done but again the script really couldn't have been worked on anymore so it's a little just it's a little bit easier just to like, okay, he's my half brother, which is a whatever. It's just a little small point of contention. Like that opening scene is great. And I think it sets the tone in almost a Dune like fashion of what we're getting ready to watch. And then we're back, you know, with all of our friends from the Starship Enterprise and them getting called back from their R and R to settle what is essentially a 
quote unquote hostage situation. I would say it's much more like Dune Three once once Paul Atreides has become the blind prophet and is out there in the desert, kind of wandering around and bringing forth the true prophecies. But um, I I feel that it the whole ploy with Spock and it, with throughout the movie you've got one that happens with McCoy and I don't want to give things away a bit too early, but the characters have to sort of betray Captain Kirk and go against their own nature. So I think everyone involved who has been this character and has been performing and kind of inside these fictional people's brains for the last 20, 30 years had some problems with the direction that that Shatner wanted to take things into and what these characters were going to end up doing and giving any reason. We had to have something personal for Spock to have a reason to have some sort of confliction. Because, because, yeah, it's not logical. And I think you're headed down a correct path. Is I think a lot of the cast just felt like it was making their characters look stupid like they were being easily led astray by like some invader to the Enterprise. And it's just like, well, I think the whole point is he is that dynamic and he does have this this gift to, of relieving someone of their innermost pain and anguish. Well, I think a lot of it comes down to, and I don't, this is just presumptuous of nature of, of me as the viewer. Is it so much a weakness? Are these people being preyed upon? Or is Cybok using his skills as a Vulcan or some form of mind-melding Vulcan magic to let them see what's happening? And him being what I would say a bit of a superior being to an average Earthling, he's much more cult-like than Jim Jones. He's able to actually make these people believe him without them having to believe him with offering them a bit of peace. And we're getting really into detail about who these people are, not so much what they've done, I, Alexander Nash, was, was getting into that with the introduction of this movie, and this takes me back again to westerns and Shatner-loving westerns and Star Trek really being a space western. This is the most triumphant of them, that you've got this character coming forward like death-like, death on this, it's not a pale horse, it's a blue horse that kind of is a unicorn. Shatner really wanted golden unicorns with pronounced horns in this movie. Harv Bennett fought him, and we ended up getting blue horses that got tiny little horns. It's still, I like it. I kind of like it. We get this character. We don't know who he is. We don't know that he's a Vulcan. He's incredibly mysterious, and he's shrouded almost like death, this weird pale figure on this planet of interstellar peace. It's supposedly a planet where all weapons have been banned and everyone is going to live within great harmony, and instead it's Thunderdome. It's an absolute wasteland, and everyone hates each other, and it's fear, and all of it is power to who this character is because I would say our, our our villain if he is a villain Cybok is a bit of a fear monger and feeds off of it to power himself I mean that's if you want to get into the history of the story this is really based around a pet peeve of Shatner's at the time of TV evangelist and he was really going after them as a uh, as a concept and that's really where the character of Cybok comes from is uh, kind of a charlatan who uh, is using your inner pain to get somewhere or get something out of you. But it's kind of twisted in this film because Cybok really is on a quest to find some sort of peace, divinity in the universe and peace. So he's not so much of a charlatan in this. That might be part of a rewrite. I'm not sure because he isn't much of a TV evangelist other than what TV evangelists offer to their per per 
parishioners, parishioners. He definitely reminds me a bit of somebody like Timothy Leary at the same time, though. And I, I really can understand the charlatan angle. I, I uh, Zelo on top of a charlatan. Both of these words, I think, are really important to describe the character. Because in the minds and the ways of the Vulcans, he truly would be a religious Zelo because he's coveting their previous knowledge that is unheard of, their emotional knowledge that they have disbanded from and don't accept anymore but his i mean bringing up somebody like timothy leary his quest into the unknown to break these barriers to transcend space and time to talk to god to see the face of god you know terence mckenna tim leary that sort of and i'm not saying that they're misguided i don't mean that on my tongue that these guys messages or what they were for was misguided the character cybok definitely where he has learned his information or where he has started his cult comes from a good place but it's misguided and we will learn later it really is a fucking wrong thing to believe in pretty much what this film deals with and it deals a lot of religious themes that i know a lot of star trek involves star trek producers and shit did not want to deal with because it would turn off an audience but i find it incredibly interesting because we are getting into divinity uh the idea of how divinity might affect the possibility of divinity um, would affect someone's life as well as the possibility of it not really making a difference and really what's inside of human nature. Because if anything, Star Trek is about aliens and blah, 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 and space, but it really is about humanity and what humanity can do to be its best version of itself. And I think Kirk, and especially in this film, has it's one of my favorite lines from Star Trek altogether. I need my purchase. Yeah, it's the whole discussion of Cybok is offering to take his pain away like he just did for uh, for Bones. And Bones feels a thousand percent better now that he's no longer guilty of the death of his father. And Kirk refuses because I need my pain. Pain is what makes me human. And he's not wrong. I know what my weaknesses are. I don't need Cybok to take me on a tour of them. If you just unbend at all. And be brainwashed by this con man. I was wrong. This con man my pain. Damn it, Bones, you're a doctor. You know that pain and guilt can't be taken away with a wave of a magic wand. They're the things we carry with us, the things that make us who we are. If we lose them, we lose ourselves. I don't want my pain taken away. I need my pain. You need your pain. It is what has taken you to this part in your life. And sometimes that pain might turn into a negative for your life. But it also has informed who you are. Once you get rid of that pain, are you the same person that you were before you experience the pain or the same person while you were experiencing the pain, are you like, it's almost like a sliding doors principle of who would you be without this pain? And where are you going from here without it? And these are all very interesting things that most Star Trek fans did not want to like think about at all. Well, I think there's an ultimate question of what happens when you meet the creator with without your pain, without any of these lessons that would have been bestowed to you by the creator, that you learn all these things for a very specific reason, and it's something that has made Kirk who he is. Everyone else is giving in almost as if it's a drug. They're using it as an excuse to not have to deal with things. Though Spock, on the other hand, what he is faced with is the fact that he is human, and that's something that in the last two movies we've already established that he's okay with, so... His whole essence, I think, is defeating. But getting well, back I think to... Spock has gotten to a point of realization altogether as as a being of who and what he is. He's 
he's somewhat cool truly enlightened, even though he is somewhat emotionless. Well, he fucking died and came back, so I think he's gotten to the point where he's he's cool with it, that he has seen the other sides. And uh, in the last movie, there's an argument between McCoy and Spock where he's like, you can't tell me about death unless I die because I don't have a frame of reference. Spock clearly has some infinite or deeper understanding of things and the relative nature of the universe comparatively to anyone else because of these experiences. We just know he's not going to talk about it. But going back to Cybok, we're, we're on this mysterious planet of peace, and we have, uh, what, three brokers of peace, pretty much, you'd call them? Uh, they're like UN delegates that are stuck on this planet. One from the Federation, one's Klingon, and one is a Romulan. And Cybok has built an army. It's something really uniquely called, and I can't remember the name. It's like the, the Interstellar Galactic Army of Peace. The words that don't fit together, army and peace... Those two things don't really form. But he has no reason for bloodshed. What's your John Cena? I will kill as many people as it takes for peace. And I use smaller bullets because they shoot through your holes. So Cybok has made this army, and he wants absolutely no bloodshed. It's all for a coy reason to bring him a Federation ship, because we have to go punch God in the face. The whole setup of this movie is this Wild West ride. Shatner insisted on there being blue horses so he could ride horses, and they have a big... Okay, Corral gunfight. Two or three episodes we were talking about him being Wyatt Earp. This is the a absolute proof. He just wanted to run around the desert and shoot some guys one last time. And he, he did. It, it Again, it drives back to everything that Alexander Nash has been bringing up. I can see why Star Trek fans fucking hate this. I really understand the So problems. basically, it's a gunfight at the G.O.D. Corral. Yeah, I mean, then they have to do... Uh, the same uh, The same thing seems to happen in every movie. We gotta steal a ship and go do something. This time, their ship is stolen, and they're doing something against their will. But you, you had referenced this a, a lot earlier into the show. It really does harken back to the original series, and I've been taking some time to explore and to adventure and to take those adventures to kind of get to know these characters more and... The first movie is so stern and so serious, and no one has worked with each other in many, many years. Spock has been going off to completely destroy his humanity, so everything's kind of uneven, and none of our characters seem like the Rubik's Cube has been put together. The second movie, things are getting closer to it, and fucking Spock dies. Third movie, we have to completely restart it all, and now we're like humbly back at home with people we feel really comfortable with. And what works, even though the writing of this movie is really chaotic, is we've become comfortable with these characters again, and now all of that's going to be taken away from us, and the trust that we've established with characters like McCoy and Spock, it's going to be taken away. We're not going to know who to trust. Not ever once have we questioned Chekhov's loyalty. In the last movie, he almost died because of his sincere and utmost loyalty. Now he's going to betray us. Nothing is true. We, we are taken on, I think, an equal adventure to the characters, that Cyborg, what Cyborg is trying to do. Everyone is so clueless. Everyone is lost in the mysticism. And by the second act of this movie, I think you are questioning just as well. Like, well, man, if Chekhov and Sulu can fall for this guy, if Spock's fallen for this guy, maybe we're going to go meet God. The only steadfast person is Kirk, along with Scotty, but that's because he has fucking work to do. <laughs> He's got a job. He's got to do it. And I think a lot of it has to do with Kirk's experience of just never trusting anybody at a certain point and never trusting a get-out-of-jail-free-card type situation that he is immediately skeptical skeptical of this being that claims it's a god or the god, and everyone else is kind of going it with open arms. Now, 
where does this go if Kirk had come with open arms and everybody is just waiting for this deity? It, would it be a, a benevolent deity once it left the frontier? Would it be a an angry, harsh type creature? Would it be a naughty god? And I think has, Hank has some information about really what's going on because it was the deity was kind of put there and the frontier that they're having to go to go through to get to it was is like a barrier to keep it in as opposed to keeping others out a lot of it too comes to just backwriting the information i'm going to spill here i'll try and fill in my sources and, and where it all comes from but shatner wanted these events to take place in the middle of the universe and he was informed by people harv bennett hired uh, astrologers to let him know there is no fucking center of the universe you have to learn. You have to look at a science book before you start writing stuff all willy-nilly, Bill. So he said, okay, how about the center of our galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy, that there's some sort of barrier that's been put up that nobody can get through, and that's why everything happens in our galaxy. Does that make sense? And at the time period, sure, it just sounded like something you could use as a writing tool, but Star Trek fans and writers, and writers in general, I don't want to just poise it on Star Trek fans, use it as an ultimate tool of creativity to bridge the gap from the original series to where we're at now. So this this thing, this god, we'll talk about him more in a little while. I'm going to call him the One, because that's what he seems to be called in most of the Star Trek literature. He was brought forward by somebody named Q, which we'll learn about. We won't, because we're not going to talk about those. In the Next Generation series, he's a long-term character, some sort of immortal. Honestly, I don't know much about him, so please don't send us angry emails because I got the character wrong. Q, with the assistance of the Guardian of Forever, something from the original series, brought forth three entities. One is called Nil, one is called Gorgon, and then you've got the One. Gorgon appears in the original series. He helps children maliciously kill adults on this planet until Kirk steps in. And then you've got Nil, something that uh, is very more spoken about in the novelization of an episode from the first series. And see, I'm, I'm like digging here. You can even hear the shovel behind me picking up the dirt and throwing it. All of these deep-seated holes. And we keep having to go back to the former episodes on this series. Last week, we were discussing whales and how whales can sing. And, and they have these songs that can travel thousands of miles. And all of them stop singing it together. All the stuff that really would have been important for the movie to have been said in two seconds. Something Uhura could have been like, hey, did you guys know I just pulled this up on the computer? Nothing that we actually get to our face that helps kind of continue the adventure and what's going on here. All of this stuff is really loosely brought forward in the Next Generation novel, Prime Directive, I believe. I'm sorry, that's an original series novel, Prime Directive. There's so much stuff and fan-based stuff that connects things because you, I, 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 me even, like watching this movie, my very first problem when I encountered Star Trek V was, well, what the fuck is it? Is it God? Is it the God of the Old Testament? Is it some sort of deity? Is it some sort of creature? No, it's something that was brought forward from another plane of existence and is obviously more strong or stronger, stronger than any of us or any deity or form of life that we have here. It quite possibly created monotheism or our Earth. It's a trickster. It's a it's a bastard. These so, but at the same time, it still could be considered a god. Yeah, I mean, from what I've been able to dig up and and what I've gotten my hamster brain to understand is, this and three other dudes got brought into our Milky Way galaxy, and they pretty much started wars, trouble. They also created Earth and religions and people in their own forms, and eventually all three of them were banished to different parts of the universe. This one, a Malavan entity known as the One, 
was pushed back beyond this great barrier onto a planet that eventually is regarded with great myth as possibly a Vulcan heaven. But there's a scene in the movie where each character of, of a different, I don't want to say ethnicity, but the Vulcans, the Romulans, species. the species, they all say their version of heaven. When we, uh, we come upon this planet, every single one of them regards it with their own shock. You know, I know what was it called? God damn it. Shaki-Ra. That's what the Vulcans called it. It's the planet of Shaki-Ra. So this god, this god of Shaki-Ra very well may be the god of Genesis, the biblical god, the god of the Old Testament, a angry creator that did nothing but cause turmoil. I mean, let's go look at that poor asshole Job. He didn't deserve all the things that happened to him. This guy kind of, and I mean, I'm sure if Christians are listening to our show, they're tuning out avidly now as I begin to rapidly insult <laughs> their, their religion this guy's a dickhead this that's kind of the lead here which really opens us up to a lot of philosophy with gene roddenberry's idea of religion in star trek something that i think fans either love or hate i think there's got to be a, a, a side or i think there's got to be a line down the sand that people either want religion in the future or they don't and of course there are fans that are of the series that are religious and this i can really see as a smack in the face because if all of these things that have become canon and I'm going to use the word apocryphal. I think everything I was just discussing is very apocryphal. It's lesser text that you can add into it. Sure, it can help out, but I think it's just been 10 minutes of babbling of, is this God? Is it not God? Which takes us directly back into the movie and the same questions that Kirk is asking the entire time. And we never are left with a satisfying answer. I personally like to think what we encounter is what I would say the Earth God. I mean, I'm not saying our God as... I'm a Christian, and I'm not saying I'm not one either, but you know what I mean. The God of this realm that most people acknowledge, yada, yada, yada. As Hank was going through this with me earlier, the, the be- like as he was explaining it to me, the best thing that I could come up with, as I understand it, is it feels a lot like, and pardon me if I have to pull you into the MCU, but kind of how Thor is in the Marvel Universe. He technically is a god, but he is from another dimension. He is also a being. So that's kind of the same thing that's going on in Star Trek, as it seems that this is or could be a deity, but it also is a living thing. And that living thing could have malice. It seems to be why this thing is being lot behind this kind of barrier is because it did have a lot of malice and it's trying to protect all of creation from this quote-unquote god which is an interesting concept for like a, a star trek pit movie or story why wasn't any of that mentioned i think that would have really helped push what writer we're strike <laughs> well i mean a, a writer strike aside five seconds of shatner or and this is just us going back to previous episodes Somebody could have said it so easily, like, oh my god, we just found out that this thing was banned, or it's the brother of that thing we fought in episode 27 in 1968. And I know that's asking for a lot. I still think it's coherent for what it is, but when you build up an entire movie to going and punching God in its face and finding out it's not God, it's like, well, who are we going to punch now? Somebody didn't get punched in the face, and the movie really feels that way. You get to that point of, like, they shot shot with some beams and stuff. They shot at God a couple times. I mean, 
They photoned it. And then something that also is very uneven with this movie is, again, we have a very ornery Klingon that is trying to fuck with the Enterprise the entire time. And I love Christopher Lloyd in Part 3, and I really like the Klingons in this movie, too, but we just don't get... I feel everything that is involved with them could have been their own adventure and their own devices because they're such fun characters. The actors are so terrific. We don't get any time with them. We really get to go inside of what the Klingon spaceships look like, which is all unknown to us. In the the second and third movie, we begin exploring the planet Vulcan. Part four, we see a little bit more of it. And they're a very monastic people. They're very mysterious and shrouded in all sorts of religious rites and science, and we don't know much about them, so exploring them is really cool. But the Klingons are vicious warriors, and they're all based on honor. They're very Viking-like. They're very intense. And we get all these really cool opportunities to experience them, and then it's like, eh. We'll just go away. We got two really cool people. How many rogue Klingons are they going to come into contact with in the in the film series? Because it just happens constantly of like, I acted against the Klingon Empire and I am sorry. <laughs> and that's pretty much how they end. It would have been nice seeing a Romulan or something else because we do have, so we have a human, we have a Romulan, and we have a Klingon that are all brought into the scenes very early. We have these characters that we can run with and do something from all of their empires. And, and the human, David Warren, Warner, who comes back actually later in the next movie as a Klingon. We've got two really fun actors, Spice Crosby and Rex Holman, who were both bodybuilders and went deep into these characters. By the time filming was done, they could not only do their lines, but everybody else's in Klingon. They actually hired the guy that created the Klingon language to bring them on board, so to speak, and to teach the actors all of this. So much effort and so much put into these two characters that from the very first scene they're introduced, I feel there's a love story going on between them, that the Vixus character played by Spice Williams is in love with Jean, the Rex Holman Klingon, and there's this whole back and forth and her adoration for them, and then it patters out once we get into the really Western stuff, and toward the end of the movie, it's like, oh yeah, shit, Klingons are back. Uh Uh-oh forgot about them it's it's and it's obviously a weak use of coming up with a heavy for a plot device but part four didn't need one the the fourth movie managed to work with just the weird probe that was threatening the existence of earth i think having lawrence luckenbill as cybok and the idea of traveling to the middle of our world to find god was much enough. I mean, we really didn't need well, to go so much. a lot much. of it is it's 1989 or 88 when they're filming this. And I think the studio got involved. It was just like, oh, we need more action. We need more action. Summer movie, summer movie, action, action. And this concept does not lend itself to an action story. And they have the assault with the, the kind of the cowboy western scene with the horses assault on the planet. And they uh, have a little bit of fighting at the end, but it's for the most part pretty actionless. But I think that works to its advantage because we can always get back to the, the philosophic questions in this film that make it interesting and Kirk's idea of what is humanity. And at the end, we sum it all up with maybe God is just the human heart. So and then it's a little like ham fisted of an explanation and all that shit. But at the same time, I think that's what kind of the heart of Star Trek is, is humanity at its best and humanity at its best needs to experience pain it needs to learn empathy it needs to somewhat hold on to its pain because if you've seen somebody who is truthfully like blissfully ignorant to anything going on in the world 
they're some of the dumbest motherfuckers on earth because they're just they're not letting their pain inform them. And when I say inform them, that doesn't mean revenge. It doesn't mean holding horrible things inside of yourself and holding like grudges and all that shit. It's not becoming a Cenobite. Just learning from experiences you've had. Like it's kind of like um similar to Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Uh, that at the end of the film, they realize they've wiped each other their memories and they're going to do it again anyway because despite having all the bad things that they had together, there was so much good in that too and why not experience that good if you have to deal with a little bit of the pain to get all that good? And that's what humanity is. is It's a lot of pain, but it's also a lot of good. And there's just so many poignant ideas in this film that I think people have kind of kicked the curb and ignore because they, at this point we're deep into like next gen and that this, that's what they wanted. They wanted a lot more next gen stuff, which was a lot more about science. Uh, not, it still had some philosophic questions to answer, especially with data and a bunch and of Q. Other I mean, Q is a really strange character because the guy I was talking about earlier is very similar to what these creatures are that I have been rambling about and what the one could be because Q is some like ether realmly being that is technically immortal and there's a whole species of people like him. So there are massively unique concepts. But one of the things that I think is a problem with Star Trek V when it comes to the audience is these aren't so much philosophical things as they're theosophical things, and I do think they begin early on in the movie that, uh, as I was referencing, when Cybok comes forward on this blue horse, he is sort of like the biblical representation of death, and then once we move forward and we see Nimbus 3 and we see this beautiful planet of peace where there are no weapons and everyone is supposed to live in harmony is a desert wasteland. And They're absolutely... mostly just bored, it seems. Well, the first thing when you get to the, the, the township, which is called Paradise, something spray-painted right over entering Paradise, and it's just the words lost. So I think at the beginning of this movie, even, Shatner was trying to invoke the ideas of John Milton's Paradise Lost and the trials and tribulations of Lucifer after he fell from heaven. And Cybok is somebody that's incredibly similar because not only is he a Vulcan, but he is the half-brother of Spock. That means his father is a very, very, very important person. We learn that his mother was a princess. So he could have been you know, a god, literally, of his own people. The the Vulcans have such admiration for their hierarchy. They have such admiration for the high priests and priestesses, I guess you could say. Cybok was being groomed to be a, a king of Vulcan, a lord of Vulcan. I don't know much about the people, but he was obviously going to be something very, very important. And this message of emotion, what caught him, what brought him forward, it's not that it's so much wrong. It's not follow... It's not that we're saying don't follow your heart or don't follow your dreams. It's the almost lust to erase everything, to not establish even who you are, to live in this... I I almost feel vanity-driven existence where you feel no pain and you don't suffer. What is that? That's not living. The only point of living is to understand the suffering and to grow from it or to change from it or to to evolve, to be more like Spock, who can deal with his human side and his logical side while ever growing forward and learning. The the villain, quote-unquote, of the first movie, V'ger, was on the verge of absolutely destroying the world, and once it realized that it could have the power of fucking getting rid of everything, it decided to transcend and become a different being so it could continue learning. 
everything throughout Star Trek is one big reference, I think, to pushing forward and learning and always having an open heart and open mind. But this movie specifically, you really have to look at these questions of emotion over logic and it delves even deeper and and then it delves even deeper than the Vulcans and then what Spock has taught us you have to make a clear-cut decision of, of what matters to you in your life no matter how miserable or how awful it is if you're not a better person for what you've been doing then you're just kind of lost like Cybok you're not part of the flock you're, you're still searching for answers and if you're searching for too many answers you're missing the things that are around you it's okay to look for answers but don't make that your entire life and so many people have led astray into different religions different paths just because they they need all these answers and they'll try some eastern religions they'll try being buddhist they'll try being hindi they'll try being christian and it's just they're they're jumping all over the place to try to find some understanding of the world we live in. And it's just, you need to find that personal peace in yourself first before any of these things are going to help you. None of these things are going to put you like, get you to that point you want to be because you're not getting deep into yourself to find out what your truth is, what your inner person is, who you are. I'm going to use Christianity because this is the, the easiest one for me to use right now. But the idea of hell the, the actual biblical idea of hell when it comes to Christianity is being away from God's love. Without pain, how can you experience love? And you've got that old greeting card statement, you can't love anyone unless you love yourself. But all of that actually has a place and is true because if you can't love yourself, how could you express love to anyone else? But if you can't love yourself, how could you be devoted and love a God that asks you to do nothing but love. If you can't experience your pain and find love for it and grow from it, how could you serve your God? How could you serve a God that asks nothing of you to do but love other people? So my whole point coming into this is Cybok isn't teaching love. He's pretty much he's teaching te ignorance. Yes, he's, he's teaching you to ignore love, if anything. He's pushing it away for blind, absolute idolism, which again can take me back to Christianity is one of the biggest faults. These worship of false idols just because you get a shiny offer, just because these people might make the rain better. You have the devotion of love and knowledge, or you have nothing. You have this idea with Christianity behind the, the, the lines of the mysticism and the dogma of every form and branch from Catholicism to Southern Baptist that Christ's love is the most pure thing ever. So if you're as far away from that love as possible, just trying to bring this into, I wouldn't say layman terms, but religious terms, looking at Cybok, you would call him a, pro a false prophet. He would be a charlatan. He would be somebody that would be cast out speaking wicked tongues or something like that because he's trying to exonerate your love, your love is your pain. I mean, that's almost the entire point of the eating the body of Christ and drinking his blood. He died for you, his pain and suffering and sin and woe. What has Cybok done in those regards? He wants to cheat the system to pretty much become uh, the next space prophet. And you can take that as Jesus Allah, however you want to, because I don't feel I don't want to keep using Christianity as my whipping boy. Ooh, bad reference, because, you know, the Romans whipped him and then nailed him to a cross. Uh, <laughs> Rim shot. But I'm bum. Yeah, you brought up that the only, the only pure form of love is love of Christ, love of God, but that's a complete misnomer, because the only real, true love is love of self. And if yeah. you cannot have love of self, then you can't have love of 
anything else. How could you serve God? And when people God? say, well, you got to love yourself, and it, that, that, that doesn't mean you have to take that in a completely like vain sort of thing of how much you love yourself. But no, if you can't be comfortable with yourself, you can't be comfortable with who you are. And now, Alexander Nash will repeat everything Hank the World's Greatest just said for the last 10 minutes. Completely inside and out, then you can't really have any love. Then it's just blind grasping for, um, like for idols or for some sort of thing or person to bail you out of this miserable existence and that's not what it's about love is love of experience that you have and love of yourself and who you are and the things that you do and if you can't love those things then there really is no like man is an island and man is his own god if you can't love your own god then you know what's the point of searching for another yep if you can't love yourself how can you be expected to serve any sort of master that requires you to love so cyborg has this eternal quest to meet god to understand everything and he's formed this army by taking these people's pain but what if the one was actually god what if the deity or space monster whatever the fuck you want to call it that we encounter after we get outside of this weird little place in the galaxy was god would he have taken all of this in loving regard somebody that has falsified the entire message who has taken these people's pain for his own personal gain and i think that's a question that shatner wanted to ask and is is in the air with the movie but by the time we get to this place it becomes another epic cowboy battle and kirk has to get out of dodge there were supposed to be rock monsters that the one yes, I've, I've heard the rumor of and they like built some suits but they only could build like two suits there were some shots done for this and it just didn't I, I wish it would have happened there was a lot of stuff there was going to be another uh, I believe it was actually shot a whole nother memory of Spock with Cybok as a child and and them part of his angry that would have really added something I think yeah there's a and a lot of it it's like, a history well, it seems like a lot of things were shot, and you have touched upon this a few times, and I just I didn't spend a lot of time researching into this direction. But it looks like this is really where Harve Bennett put his foot down with a lot of stuff, and he seemed to have a bit more of a better working relationship with guys like Nick Meyer and Leonard Nimoy. But at the same time, Shatner... I don't want to talk bad about the guy because it's a Star Trek show, but we all know rumors and we've all heard things about him, and I'm sure he can be difficult to work with, but behind the director's chair, just hearing from him, like I heard the golden unicorn thing from him and his daughter Liz, that's what he wanted. He wanted the horses to be sparkly gold and to have like 12 to 14 inch giant pronounced unicorn horns, and he thought that would be fucking amazing. And I like to agree with the guy, but no, that's fine. <laughs> the blue horses were actually kind of cool. Because when you think about it, like, all right, we're on the other side of the galaxy, we're in space, why would every species look the same? Being blue would have been neat. The horns were a, a unique, fun addition to it. But I think what I'm trying to get to is William Shatner might have been a bit of a madman behind the chair as a director. And I think he wanted a lot more action and a lot more operatic emotional sequences that didn't fit in budgetary wise during the middle of a strike and didn't fit into Star Trek. You also have to like, again, you take in consideration that this is being filmed in 1988 and in 1989, the summer this came out and it did fairly well. The first like two weeks it was out is the same summer that last crusade came out. 
Batman came out. Um, Ghostbusters 2 came out. It was a huge summer, and I think Star Trek V really got lost in that shuffle, first of all. But second of all, I think a lot of their fan base was aging out somewhat of Star Trek. Well, got the fan base. You got to look at the actors. I mean, this is 1989, and DeForest Kelly and James Doohan were born in 1920. William Shatner was born in 1930, and the rest of the cast is like 36 to 1940 or so. So no one is, everyone is an AARP member, I think, at this point on the set of Star Trek. The summer of 89 was the beginning of, and I'm not going to say it's the beginning of the blockbuster, because there have been blockbusters before that, but this was the summer that it really started becoming about trying to nail that summer movie dollar, really, and like really have your super tentpole releases all through like a three month period. And we're just doing sequel after sequel during this time. And let's do comic book movies. Let's try this. Let's try this. And they're all just, it's when everything went super, super, super big budget throughout the 90s. And then you had, you know, your other little more personal films kind of scattered throughout the, the year. But and I don't think Star Trek is a summer movie. This is like a November movie. It's got to be treated more like an epic. This has got to be treated like a, a time off You've got to get, thing. what I'm saying basically is you got to get the fucking baby boomers in the theater. And the summer of 89, the baby boomers were seeing Batman and shit and Ghostbusters movies. And they weren't ready to sit down and have a philosophic discussion with William Shatner about the existence of God. I want to go see Batman. So in November, I think would have had a better shot. It might be remembered a little bit better that if it was released in not a summer blockbuster era. I really think, and I mean this is no insult to Shatner, but I really think if this was dealt with by somebody like Leonard Nimoy, looking at the direction of his previous two Star Trek pictures, it might have been handled a little bit better. I really like what we got, but I think so much of it that turns off the audience isn't even so much the philosophical nature of it, but it is the cowboy western nature, and it's so in your face, it's so... I just want to shoot one last time, guys. I just want to do this one last time. How how many chances are we going to get to do this? And you've got to look at the years. I mean, 1989, D. Kelly died in 1999. Uh, James Doohan died in 2005. Everyone really were on their last legs here. And I just don't know if this was... I, I, I don't want to say it was the adventure Shatner shouldn't have done, but I do feel that if it had been handled by somebody with a bit more experience behind the director's chair to do something so epic, having Shatner write it or his crew of whoever wrote his ideas he set while he spewed out while drinking scotch at three in the morning and chain smoking, those guys, it would have all come out a lot better for me. And I, I do like the direction, though. I don't think there's anything non-articulate, and I don't think Shatner's a poor director in the least bit. I just don't feel that the package and how this is presented to us, and I've brought this up almost every show, Every time they made a Star Trek movie, there was no intention of making another one. They never thought they were going to make another one. In fact, they fucking destroyed the sets nine times out of ten. One of the saving graces with this movie, the last crew decided not to do that, that we know we're going to make a movie in a year or two, let's save this. They had a lot of things budgetary-wise that could have fixed the problems, I think, if somebody with more experience behind the chair and the camera was was there. But... I like yeah, what I we have. It's mostly budgetary, though. I think it, a lot of it is the studio was not willing to put forth the money into specifically this concept for a Star Trek film, as well as just not wanting to bet on Star Trek as a property. And I think if you gave it the proper financial backing, that Shatner would have been a fine director and he would have been just as good as Nimoy. But Nimoy's budgets were bigger. Nimoy didn't have to worry about 
outside influences like writer strikes and all this other stuff. So I just think that this was a whole like hurricane of bad shit that revolved around it to get it its title as quote unquote the worst of the original Star Trek films, which I personally just don't believe. You know, I, I, there's a lot of credence in that that does put some thought onto to what I had just said, and, and that kind of makes me think in my mind. I think Shatner had a little bit more of an uphill fight than Leonard Nimoy did. I think everyone was much more comfortable with their characters and the performances and what they were supposed to be doing when it came to Nimoy's movies, and Shatner's asked a lot. Characters that didn't formerly have a lot of soul or emotion are going to be forced to have soul and emotion. You've got this weird subplot where I guess Scotty and Uhura have been fucking for a while now, and there's a lot more than just sitting at your little area and doing something. And I think maybe, hypothetically, some of these people might have felt a higher sense of self-worth than they previously had before, like, all right, well, Leonard got to make the last movie, and now Bill's making this one. Why am I getting paid what I'm getting paid? And this this role kind of makes my character look like a fucking asshole. And it really does. A lot of the characters are weakened. Not a lot of them. All of our core characters are weakened except for one specific person, and that's William Shatner. So he kind yeah, of... Yeah, I will say that could be... I mean, especially if you're part of the original cast, uh, that could be a problem for you that... He cherry-picked like, the best Shatner role. William Shatner essentially wrote a Kirk movie that was very Kirk centric and had his, like his, his pals with him, And the other guys are just kind of there for some set dressing. I can see why they could have some problems with it, but I personally don't have a problem with it being more Kirk centric. Well, we kind of need something like that because we've really delved off and, and not to be the overwhelming defense of William Shatner, but Star Trek, the series, we had Captain Pike, and it was replaced because he just wasn't a strong enough lead. Shatner's what carried the show, the adventures of Captain Kirk, and the hero is why people tuned in. The first movie reunites everyone, and then the second, third, and fourth movie go on an unintentional arc adventuring the human side and the nature of Spock and the friendship and the duality of all of these characters. So now that they're all back together again, we have to go to a space adventure. What else would make sense aside from let's return to our roots and do exactly what the original series did? Venture Space, the final frontier, and the one god, uh, the god of Chakra Lee or whatever the fuck it was. You can call it whatever you want to. It's the exact same villains we faced off with every single time when we tuned in. Well, we, neither of us were born in the 60s, when the original audience watched weekly adventures of the USS Enterprise. So it's a humble return to where we began, but the humble return being so Shatner-centric, because it's not even just like an adventure of Kirk. I think it's more of a Shatner show-off show of... Look at me, I can ride a horse still. Check out my new facelift, <laughs> my wig looks awesome, like, I can kick ass, don't, don't fuck around I will agree with, with you, though, that I think Spock could have used a little bit more um, questioning of his behaviors, or, because at this point in the history of the films of where Spock is at mentally, I think a lot of that got dropped in this one, where, like, ah, Spock's just kind of back, and he's gonna have some jokes about some beans. And it's not so much, like, Spock really getting into the the philosophy himself. These are like he's very easily kind of logically behind Cybok as opposed to like being on Kirk's side, which you expect, which is it's kind of I guess Leonard Nimoy could be right that it's just like wouldn't 
the character of Spock be following Kirk more so than his brother. And I wouldn't even say it so much as following Kirk, but following what he's learned of his humanity and his place in the world. He would never have been accepted, and what we learn from his little vision of his father going, uh, he's so human. He would have never have been accepted to the place he is even mentally in his life if he'd have stayed on Vulcan. But he's easily accepted by everyone else because they don't look at him as being pure breed or half breed or anything like that. They look at him as a friend, a brother, an ally, someone that they love and that they cherish. All of these people have formed such a bond, I don't think it would so much be, well, I'm not going to destroy my trust with Jim. It would be for everyone. I don't think Bones would... The traditional character that we have seen, he decided with no risk, with no thought, that he would take this challenge and, and do this whole thing on the planet Vulcan and take Spock's brain or soul out of his body and put it back into Spock's. No risk whatsoever. I'll do it. I'll take the danger. But all of a sudden now his will has changed because he had to go through an emotional situation with his father. A character that we've established is, in his own rights, incredibly logical. We don't know much about anybody else, but still, I, I I, really can see the constraint in some of the plight with people. I don't feel any of them. Check off Sulu, Uhura, I don't think any of them so easily would have been bended because they've saved the world so many times together. How could you trust anyone but the people you're with? The last movie, they went back in fucking time and saved the whales. I mean, <laughs> what's well, I mean, going that's, on I think here? that's part of like not really having a reasonable explanation for how... Cyborg is so powerful, and I don't mean like you know, just like powerful with might or just more powerfully being able to kind of get people to agree with him. Like, how has he achieved this, this, this power, this, uh, like, this hold over people? I said this earlier at the beginning of the show, but I guess it's never really shown because when they mind meld, you have to touch someone, but I just assumed. His ability of, because when they do that sequence when Spock sees his own birth and when Bone sees his father dying, Jim sees it too. Everybody's there in the same room, so he somehow is manipulating all of their thoughts for everyone to see these things happening and for them to be able to experience it. So I just assumed it was something that came with him being a Vulcan that he has learned out of all these years to manipulate the mind meld or... Again, something that easily could have been thrown into the story of Spock figuring this out or someone saying, you know, oh, my God, he's well, I mean, manipulating it's just her. He comes out like Moses and like I've spoken to God. And it's just we're never really given a proper explanation of why God has, you know, God has chosen him. Why, like, why did this happen to Cybok as opposed to anyone else? And we're just not given a really good explanation of that. How would he even know about this? Because he keeps saying that he's been receiving visions about this. So that means the one somehow has signaled out Cybok and has been sending him dreams for years of how to get to this location. Because he's it could the... just be because he is a powerful Vulcan and whatever, but we're just never really explained that in any sort of you know, a little sequence or any little piece of dialogue. It's just kind of just expected to be believed. I think there's a lot of references and notions toward Abrahamic religions and the Old Testament God, a very vengeful, a very spiteful deity, and then they kind of just dissipate throughout all of this, that we know that Cybok has been getting these messages and we've got these ideas of God and this paradise and the scene I had been discussing a little bit earlier where everyone is standing and saying their own versions of heaven. Somebody says, the human says Eden. So we're moving to paradise. Everyone has their own ideas and, and mythos 
all culture seems to know about this place, why didn't that, as a tool, be expounded upon whatsoever? If every single person has heard about Shaka Khan, Shaka Ri, why is it not more of an acknowledged thing? It's going to be Shaka Khan from now on. You know, it just seems like it's just kind of wasted. And I know the writer's strike. We have to keep going back to that. But once you get to a finalized... Yeah, I think a lot of this stuff could be solved just with a, like at least one to two more passes on the script. Because a lot of it just seems like we... And also the studio not wanting to be too heavy-handed with kind of these concepts and deliver more of an action film. So as opposed to getting deeper into these uh, philosophic ideas of what Eden is to this person. It just, that's going to eat up screen time when we could have had a, another like phaser fight or something else. And I, I think it's just the movie itself is being torn be, between being marketable and successful and what its original ideas and concepts were about philosophic stuff and religion and God and all these things that, we don't want to go too heavily either way. And I think it makes a little bit of mud in the middle as opposed to like really being a strong vision either way. I think conceptually a story that involves the idea of going to fight God obviously needs a hardcore philosophical standpoint. All these angles, all these things coming together. It's not even muddled. It's just a mess. Everything's a mess by the end of the movie and you're left with so many questions and I don't have a problem with it. It's, it's an odd thing. You'd think with so many loose ends and so many things you'd need to tie together, is what, did they just fight God? And what happened to Spock's brother? Is he dead? Is he ever coming back? I guess he got blown up or, or something. I couldn't help but notice your pain. My pain? It runs deep. Share it with me. Eh, it doesn't matter because the adventure continues. We're, we're really returning to the, the roots of what the series was, and I think... Knowing all of this was incomplete is just kind of hoping the audience would, all right, well, we're back. We're, the next adventure, we're obviously going to go on to something a little bit better. Uh, unfortunately, it's the final film for the original crew. I just don't have... I, I understand. I can really see the problems that everyone has with this movie. I just don't see it the same way because I think what Shatner offered us is a lot deeper than the initial viewing of this movie, and I think even going into the philosophy of what Cybok stands for, he very well could be a harbinger of death. He could be a representative of all false hopes, of all fears, of all things that you hold deep inside of you. And Alexander Nash had referenced earlier that it's very comparable to something like Thor and the, the MCU universe, but I really liken this movie as something similar to Dune itself. You've got the, the false prophet of Paul Atreides who is wandering the desert attempting to bring people forward only to know that it's fulfilling the full philosophy of the God Emperor. And in this essence, it's not so much a God Emperor, it's the eternal quest for knowledge, peace, and understanding of the Federation, something that isn't mumbo-jumbo or leftist or rightist. It's a, a galactic quest of making everything okay in the world and everyone being happy in our galaxy and our universe. And it connects truly back to the Gene Roddenberry ideas. And he didn't want to do westerns. He was angry with the idea that studios wanted to make the original series more of a western-based thing. He wanted this to be about science and philosophy and adventure and moving forward progressively as all one people. In the world, and Shatner, I really think has it in had it in his hand fully. 
and it's not just him. It's everyone else involved. It's studios. It's Harv Bennett, Paramount, the writers' strike, the other actors. You can't always get what you want, but if you try, sometimes uh, you know you get what you need, like the Rolling Stones say. And it's a good movie. I if I had to give this a full like five rating out of stars, it'd be a four, four and a half. Yeah, generally, I'd probably go three and a half. I don't know what I would give a five rating to when it came to the Star Trek movies. Probably the first one. That's pretty much where I mean, like, but I wouldn't give to me uh, super high ranks for Star Trek movies because a lot of it's kind of some schlock. It's a good point to bring up, though, that we're not trying to come at this at a certain angle. We're not hardcore fans that are, are have discerning emotions or feelings. Philosophically, this, I think, is the most difficult movie to have attempted to to. to discuss or even talk about because clearly I can't get words out of my mouth and it's because of the nature of the film it's not the writing it's not the directing and it's not the acting it really comes down to what the philosophy that Shatner attempted and I think successfully exposed us to was and pretty much the the title Star Trek 5 the search for inner humanity is probably a pretty weak title and not going to really pull people in uh, people's butts in the seats but I think that's kind of a Star Trek movie we needed. Maybe not that at this time particularly in history, but I think it was there and it put out some heady shit for people to contemplate. And I think a lot of what's wrong with people not liking this film is these are not questions they really want to ask or answer because as far as Star Trek goes, they really want to delve into more of the science, more of the logic based stuff, more of, the universe, I like AKA the Klingons and who's the Klingons father and blah, 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 all that, you know, all the history nonsense. And to me, I don't care about any Star Trek history as much as I care about the questions that Star Trek asks. I don't even know if it's so much of uh, a lot of the semantics that you're, you're divulging into that. It may be a lot more of people don't want to talk about God and religion or the question if there is a God or an omnipotent being in this universe that we are living, we that are experiencing this, let's say we're living in the Star Trek universe. It's a universe of science. It's a universe of information. Is there a place for God? And I think this is a question that Trekkies, Trekkers, and everything in between has asked since the original series and will forever and continue go forward with. And not only has Shatner touched upon it, but it comes up many times in the next generation, Voyager and everything else in between. Is there God? Is there something else on the other side of the galaxy? And what we're dealing with here, I think is a much more Philip K. Dick style answer. Yes, it's God, but God is also an asshole that is not God. And it doesn't matter if you still have your own love and you can love yourself, doesn't matter what goes on in between that or the ether realm. Now, of course, this movie doesn't bring up the questions of heaven and hell and what happens to you when you die. It's just truly the question of can you face God and love yourself? And that's a very hard question to poise. Well, I mean, the really the one question this film does ask is what does God need with a starship? Excuse me, I'd just like to ask a question. What does God need with a starship? Bring the ship closer. I said, what does God need with a starship? Jim, what are you doing? I'm asking you a question. And I think really this is as close to the first one as you're going to get out of the entire six film series. That this is as close to the motion picture as any of the rest of them are. Because I think a lot of the other ones gotten so much involved in 
questions of diplomacy and action and basically making Kirk question himself as a human and as a leader. And this one is so much more about questioning life in general. And I just don't think, but I think people weren't comfortable with the motion picture for the same questions either, that it's a, it gets a little heady at times and people really want to see him fight Khan and aliens and fun shit. And which is good too. I mean, I'm not shitting on one or the other, but I like it when Star Trek gets heady, heady as well. I personally am still conflicted over the first movie, and I've seen it like four times now, and I don't understand V'ger. I understand the idea of it, but what, what does it become? Where does it go? Does it move into the infinite ether? And those are great questions to be left with with a movie series, and I don't want to pick on something like Star Wars, but I think the series Star Trek itself later becomes something like that, where people are very focused on semantics and analytical information and who's the good guy and who's the bad guy and who's assimilating and who's doing this and who's doing that, and it's not asking you any questions. Out of all of these movies, you're, you're asked every single time something rather infinite and I think personal and something beautiful from the first movie to where we're at now. You can look at all of the characters, you can look at the journey they're going on, and like Spock, really... He, he faces death and he comes back. It's so Christ-like. All of these things are really representative of the series. All of this philosophy, I think, is as hand-in-hand -hand with the science. What pushes people away is this one, I think, really becomes much more focused on religion. And when you bring up even the words, those three letters, G-O-D, people have imposed ideas in their head that they're not willing to be a part of their science fiction world. You know, I didn't have to think about this. I didn't want God to be a part of this. And let's say you're a, a very devout Christian person and you had your own little realm and your own little world that you didn't want to be a part of something else. I can understand absolute confliction from everyone's side, but I don't think the question's asked and I don't think anything shown in this movie is different from what Gene Roddenberry intended Star Trek to be. Informative, knowledgeable, and all science-based because... They go and fight God and find out it's not even really God, or it could be God, it doesn't matter. At the end of the day, they did what was best for everyone else. Not the one. Everybody. Fucking Wrath of Khan, man. What were you saying to the Rosses over there, anyway? Oh, man, I don't know. I, I told them her death takes place in the shadow of new life. She's not really dead if we find a way to remember her. What is that? Star Trek Two. Wrath of Khan! <laughs> Kramer and I saw it last night. Spock dies, they wrap him up in a towel, and they shoot him out the bowels of the ship in that big sunglasses case. That's a hell of a thing when Spock died. Yeah. You good? Kill it. So that's it. Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. Next week, it's the end. We finish our Trek of the Stars. For now... Maybe one day there'll be hope for more, but I wouldn't guarantee it. Star Trek VI Undiscovered Country, a movie all about xenophobia and racism. So if you didn't like the topics we discussed on this episode, I'm sure next week will be even worse for you. The ashtray is full, and the bottle is empty. That's it. Da-da-da!
on the next episode of Death by DVD. The return of everyone's favorite game, Keith David, or David Keith. And finally, the end of Boldly Going Nowhere, Death by DVD does Star Trek. Well, it's about time. Never thought that was going to end. Next week. DVD is recorded in front of a dead studio audience. Portions of today's programming have been mechanically reproduced. The management and the staff wish you a pleasant good night and good morning. Warp one, Mr. Sewell. Accelerating to warp one, sir.